You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. My name is Ethan. I am the family pastor here. Now, uh, a few years ago, I formed this habit. So starting every December, roughly around December, I changed the preset stations on my radio in my car. So I started this a few years back. And the reason that I do that, and you may know this, is that there's a few stations that'll just play Christmas music 24-7, around the clock, in December. And so I made the decision, you know what, I'm just going to lean into it. I'm just going to enjoy it. So now I embrace the sentimentality of the season. And what that means is that if you see me driving around this week or you pull up next to me at a red light, don't be surprised if you see me singing out loud to 12 Days of Christmas, and please don't judge me. Um, You can join along if you'd like. We'll roll down the windows and sing together. Uh, But over these past few weeks of listening to all these Christmas songs, one thing that I've noticed and really been impressed with is that our Christmas songs, they tend to paint this picture of Christmas as a time when all of our problems just kind of magically they float away. We don't know where they go, but they're not here. They're gone for December. Maybe they come back sometime in January. I had to laugh. Even this morning, I was getting in my car. I turned on the car, and the very first words that I heard were, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And so I, th- I, thought, that was, I thought that was kind of a funny thing for this morning. But um, and, you know, it's a great song, and, and, and I, hope, I hope it's the most wonderful time of the year. But we're not guaranteed that. There's nothing magical that happens in December to make it different, and our problems certainly don't go away in Christmas time. If anything, the opposite actually occurs. The contrast between our expectations for this season and the reality of what we actually experience, it often just kind of shines a spotlight on the problems that we experience. It shines a spotlight on them in a way that really can cast a shadow over the whole season. But whether, whether it's December or whether it's any other month out of the year, God never asks us to take a Christmas song approach to our problems. He doesn't ask us to paste on a smile and just pretend like our problems don't exist. God actually treats our problems as real. He treats them as real, and they matter to him. They matter to him, and he offers to step in and help us with our problems. He does that not from a distance, not from a long way off, but he actually comes up close to help us with our problems. And he demonstrated his willingness to step into our problems in a very real way. He did it 2,000 years ago by coming to earth, humbling himself, and putting on human flesh to be among us. And that's what we've been talking about. Uh, That's what Elliot was talking about yesterday. That's what we'll be talking about today, this idea that God has come to be with us. And we see this in Scripture. We read this last week. It's in Matthew 1.23, where we read this. The virgin, that is Mary, the mother of Jesus will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's what we're talking about. The, the, the birth of Jesus, this is the arrival of God coming to be with us, and God coming to be with us, this is the clearest indication that you or I have that God is not aloof to our problems. He's not aloof toward us or anything of the problems we experience. He actually cares enough to get personally involved in the messiness of our lives. And the problems that we experience, that God's willing to help us with, the problems that we experience, they come in all kinds of shapes, all kinds of sizes, all kinds of variety, but they they tend to fall into just a handful of categories. So you've got work problems. We all experience work problems, whether it's what you do for a living 
or really anything, any major responsibility, any, any job that you have, we experience work problems. Uh, closely related to that, we experience money problems. Uh, money problems, this deals with anything having to do with limited resources. We also experience family problems. So this could be a marriage conflict, could be a two-year-old that's just out of control. It could be a 20-year-old who's really struggling in some area. We have family problems. We also have relationship problems. We experience conflict. We experience hurt with those who are outside of our family as well. Uh, health problems. This can range from just minor irritations or something that really is, is life-consuming and life-altering. And then we have loss. So health problems well, they often culminate in, in loss, in the death or the decline of a loved one. So these are the basic problems that we encounter in life. And what, what happens is frequently two or three of these will combine. Rarely is it just one of these. Usually it's two or three of these kind of combine, and they come at us simultaneously. But behind each of these problems, there's another problem. There's a problem behind these problems. That problem is sin. <clears throat> Sin, sin is the act of rebelling against God. It's choosing our way over God's. And so God created a world that was without sin. In his original creation, no sin. But then he gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, he gave them a choice. He gave them the choice of following him, or he gave them the choice of rebelling. And we know what happened. They chose to rebel. When they rebelled, sin entered the world, and with it entered all of these problems. So before sin, you had work. You still had work in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But work, it was just joy. It was a pleasure for them. It was something that they enjoyed doing. Now, after sin, work becomes this kind of mixture of pleasure and pain. And we all know this. There's, there is pleasure, there's joy with work, but there's also pain mixed in with it. Uh, in the Garden, Adam and Eve, they'd only known abundance. All of a sudden, they were introduced to scarcity. Resources went from abundant to now being a limited thing. When sin entered... The harmony that existed between Adam and Eve, well, all of a sudden there's conflict in there. And their children's 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 children would continue to have conflict. It's not just pure harmony anymore. <clears throat> the door was also open for sickness, for sickness and suffering. And that sickness and suffering would lead to the eventual physical death of Adam and Eve and each of their descendants. But then, on top of these problems, sin introduced the granddaddy of all problems. Sin introduced spiritual death. All of these problems, then you've got spiritual death. Sin, what it does is it breaks our relationship with God. And it's not just a temporary break. It results in an eternal separation from God. So our other problems, they're very real. But compared with this problem, compared with spiritual death, our other problems just kind of fade into the background. This this is the big problem. Now, last week, Elliot talked about how Jesus came to deal with our sin. Here's what we read out of Matthew 121. It says, She will give birth to a son, that is, Mary will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus solved this problem, the problem of our sin, of our spiritual death. He solved it by trading his sinless life. He lived a sinless life, and he traded that sinless life for our sinful lives. He did that by dying on a cross. And when he did that, he took the guilty verdict that we had and the punishment that with, went with it, and he gave us his innocent verdict. It was a very good trade for us. And the result is that now we can have 
a restored relationship with God because of what Jesus did. And so if you've accepted that gift, what it means is your greatest problem is solved. If you've not accepted that gift, then God says, today, today if you invite me, I will solve your greatest problem. I will take your guilty verdict, and I will give you the not guilty verdict that I purchased for you on your behalf. I will restore your relationship with God. And you can accept that gift by receiving his forgiveness and by committing to following him. And if you do that, he will solve your greatest problem. So God came to earth to solve our greatest problem, but the other problems that we have, those still remain. We'd like for them all to go away as well, but they remain. Why is that? Well, the reason is because we continue to live in a world that's been impacted by sin. It's marked by sin. And we ourselves, though we've been forgiven, we continue to struggle with sin, and we'll continue to struggle with sin for our whole lives. Now, one day, we will, in heaven, we will completely escape the effects of sin. At Revelation 21, 4, it describes that day. Here's what it says. It says, In that day he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. So one day this will be the case. But until that day, the problems that sin introduced in the world, will they still continue to be a part of our lives. So we're talking about God with us. So does, does this mean that, that God with us is just kind of a future hope? Well, no, it's, it's, it's more than just a future hope. It is that, but it's more. God with us, it's more than a future hope. It's also a present reality. And that's because God with us, while it doesn't remove our problems, it does resize the problems that we face. And so to get a picture of how God with us resizes our problems, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first time in the Bible that this phrase, Emmanuel, appears. We alluded to it last week. Today, we're going to dive more into it. The first time that it shows up in the Bible is in the book of Isaiah, back in the Old Testament. And, um, and, and it shows up there. One, it's as a prophecy, like we looked at last week. It's as a prophecy pointing to Jesus. But in addition to that, it's also a sign of God's willingness to get involved in the problems of his people. So here's the context. The context is there's a king named Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah, and the capital city of Judah is Jerusalem. The capital city is Jerusalem, and it's under, it's under siege. It's, there's enemies who are threatening to uh, siege the city and take it over, defeat, and destroy it. So that's what's going on. This is kind of a worst-case scenario problem. So if you're Ahaz, you're in charge of these people, you're under attack, and you're under imminent threat of basically destruction. And, uh, and total loss of your kingdom. So that's what's going on there. And it's in this moment, well, here's what we read. Here's what, um, here's what Isaiah 7-2 says about what's going on in the face of this imminent threat. It says, The hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken before the wind. So this is a high anxiety, this is a high stress situation that we have going on here. And then it's in this tense moment that God sends, sends the prophet Isaiah. And he sends them to Ahaz, and he opens with these words for Ahaz. He says, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. So these are bold words that Isaiah gives to Ahaz. If, if you're facing this kind of disaster, and someone says to you these words, be calm, don't be afraid, well, you expect some rational reason why it is that you should be calm and not be afraid. Now, I experienced this recently with my daughter, Clara. Uh, she went through this phase recently where she's, she's six years old right now, and she went through a phase where she was just really scared of spiders. 
Um, we had seen some black widows in her backyard, and she knew that there were spiders around. And particularly at night, she was really afraid that spiders were going to come in and bite her. So she was getting up multiple times at night with that fear. It was, it was really a very real thing for her. And so I would tell her something similar to what Isaiah said to Ahaz. I would say, Clara, be calm, settle down, you don't need to be afraid. But Clara, she's a sharp girl. And so she would look at me, and she'd give me this look that says, Dad, I really want to believe you, but I'm going to really need some convincing here. Can you, can you help me out? Can you give me a little more than just be calm, don't be afraid? Uh, what she needed, and the reason she gave me that look, is because she needed, she needed more than just empty platitudes. She needed more than just, you know what, Clara, it's all going to be fine, don't worry about it. That wasn't enough for her in that fear. She needed more than empty promises. She, needed, she didn't need me to say, you know what, I'm not going to let any spiders come into your room. Her and I both knew that was not something that I could promise. What she needed was an accurate perspective. That's what she needed. And so we launched out on this campaign, her and I, to learn about spiders. So we started looking at pictures of spiders. At night when the black widows would come out, we'd get a flashlight, we'd go look at them, talk about them from a safe distance. And uh, we learned all kinds of spider facts. And so over weeks of doing this, she learned, you know what, it's actually pretty reasonable to not fear spiders coming into my bed at night. As she learned, what happened is her perspective on the situation changed. And only after her perspective changed did it seem reasonable for her to not be afraid of spiders, to be calm and not be afraid. So similarly, Ahaz, he needed more than just platitudes and empty promises. What he needed was a perspective change. He needed a reasonable basis for why he, as a leader of a people that were under attack, should be calm and not be afraid. And so Isaiah provides him with this reasonable basis by guiding him to answer these three questions, three questions that we're going to look at today. And these are three practical questions that we can also ask ourselves to get perspective on the problems that we're facing today. So the first question is this, it's what is your biggest fear? Now the conversation between Ahaz and Isaiah, it took place, we're told, at an aqueduct that was bringing fresh water into the city. And this was a strategic meeting place. It wasn't an accident that this is the spot where they were meeting. This location, it was symbolic of Ahaz's greatest fear. His greatest fear is that the city would be under siege that fresh water supply would be cut off, eventually they'd run out of water, and it would lead to defeat or death as a result, or both of those as a result. But it wasn't just a general fear that he had, it was actually a specific and a credible threat that he was facing. So in this situation, his biggest fears, they had names. The names of his fears were the army of Syria and the army of Israel. Those are the ones who were threatening him. But Isaiah, what he did is he took these fears and he put some context around them. Here's what he said in verse 4. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. So these are the enemies that are facing Ahaz, and Isaiah calls them smoldering stubs of firewood. So when you think about that, kind of think about like a, a cigarette butt that you might see on the sidewalk that's smoldering there. It's, it's dying, it's, it's going out. So what's, what is, what's Isaiah getting at here? Is he saying, 
you know there's no real threat? Well, no, that's, that's not exactly what he's saying. What he's doing is he's correcting Ahaz's perspective and reminding him that there's something that he should fear, fear more than these armies. There's a creator God who holds these armies that Ahaz fears so much just right there in the palm of his hand. And for that God, extinguish the, extinguishing these armies, it's as simple as just kind of stomping out a cigarette butt that you might see on the sidewalk. It's not a big deal for him to do that. So Isaiah is reminding Ahaz that if his fears of these armies eclipses his fear of the God who created these armies, then he's going to have much worse problems to deal with. So Ahaz's first perspective shift must be to fear God more than he fears anything else. But then that kind of begs the question, doesn't it? What does it mean to actually fear God? We talk about fearing things, fearing God. What does it mean to fear God. Well, in a nutshell, what it means is to take God seriously. It means taking him seriously enough that disobeying him is not an option on the table. That's not an option that we entertain or that we consider. It means that we decide that crossing God is a more dangerous option for us than crossing the most dangerous armies on earth. And that's why Isaiah led with these lines. He he said, be careful and be calm. Be careful. This is a warning to be careful to obey God. That's what's going on there. When we fear something more than we fear God, all of a sudden, disobeying God now becomes a really good option and a viable option on the table. So he says, be careful. He also says, be calm. And this is a warning to not panic. When we fear something more than God, we tend to to panic and make fear-based decisions. So he says, be calm. So, be careful, be calm. This is really a warning not to factor God out of the equation or to make these panicky, fear-based decisions. That's what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz. Now, a few years ago, I hit one of those seasons, my family and I, where we all go through where everything's just kind of breaking, you know? And so you're paying to fix thing after thing. You've got all these unexpected expenses coming at you. We went through one of those seasons that we all go through, And so right after kind of paying all of these unexpected bills that I wasn't planning on having on my plate, I got a letter, and the letter was from the county, and it was telling me I needed to pay to get a dog license for my little terrier. I'd had this little terrier for like 10 years. Apparently, I was flying under the radar, and I didn't even know it. So I got this letter right on the heels of all these unexpected expenses. I was already stressed because of all this other stuff, And honestly, I was in a pretty sour mood. And so I remember thinking, yeah, I'm not going to pay that. And so I didn't. I didn't pay it. Now, fast forward one year. um, I was going through a different set of challenges. And I remember asking God, just if there was anything that I needed to clear up in my relationship with him. I just wanted to take advantage of the opportunity of the challenges I was going through, ask him if there's anything that was out of line in my heart toward him, anything that I needed to clear up. And he clearly pointed me to that 60 bucks the 60 bucks that I was supposed to pay for my terrier. And so I realized that what I had done is in that little situation, what I'd done is I had allowed my fear of money to supersede my fear of God. And so the actions and the decisions that flowed out of that fear, well, they weren't actions and decisions of faith that involved trusting God. And so instead of, you know, trusting God to, to, to provide for my family 
in these little things and, and, and provide for us instead of actually paying a debt that I really legitimately owed. Instead, what I did is I factored God out, and even though it seemed like a small matter, I took that small matter into my own hands. What I was is I was not careful to obey. Now, Isaiah met Ahaz at the aqueduct, like we talked about. I mean, and that, that's because it was a place that represented his biggest fear and the problem that he was facing. Now, if God had sent a prophet to confront me in my sin in that situation, I think he might have met me at the bank. Or he at least would have met me while I was sitting there looking at my banking app on the iPad. Um, and so I think it's good for all of us to consider in the problem that you're facing right now. What problems are you facing right now? If God was to meet you at that problem, what would it be? Is there, is there a place? Is there a person? Is there an app on your phone that represents something that you are fearing more than God in your life? And if something comes to mind, I think it'd be worthwhile. You've got pen and paper. So jot that down or make a mental note. If something comes to mind, that's an important thing. And you can ask God later on, ask God, what do you want me to do with that? What do I need to do to make that right with you? Now, the next question that Ahaz had to deal with was, where is your greatest hope? Our greatest hope is often tied to our biggest fear. And that was certainly the case for Ahaz. His biggest fear was strong armies. And so his greatest hope, no surprise, was in stronger armies now, Assyria was the military powerhouse of the day. And this is Assyria, not Syria. So Syria is attacking. Assyria is this big military powerhouse kind of off to the northeast from where Judah was. This was the, the military powerhouse of the day. And Ahaz viewed turning to Assyria as really his best option. But the problem with that was that God had a different plan. In God's eyes, turning to Assyria, this was something that was off limits. God was absolutely willing to step in and save Judah, but he was going to do it on his own terms. And he knew that trusting in Assyria, in the long run, this would actually lead to bigger problems or actually really similar problems to the ones that they were facing in their current crisis. And so that was off limits in God's eyes. And what God did is he gave Ahaz every possible chance to turn from his Assyria-based hope to a God-based hope. Here's what we read in verse 10. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. So God asks, he says, ask whatever you want. Let me convince you. Let me help you see that I am worthy of being your greatest hope. But Ahaz, he declines to even ask for this sign. And at first blush, his answer, it seems really spiritual. It seems pious. But what's really going on here is his refusal to ask for a sign is actually a refusal to trust in God. That's not something that he's comfortable doing. He's far more comfortable putting his trust in an army that he can see than in a God that he cannot see. And so God says, very well, I will give you a sign. If you're not going to ask for a sign, I will give you a sign. And here's what we read. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. This is a reference to Ahaz. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here's the passage that we read quoted in Matthew. 
the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. It says, he will be eating curds and honey, and when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, before the boy knows enough to choose, uh, uh, enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So this sign finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. That's what we talked about last week. But the initial fulfillment, well, that was for Ahaz. The virgin will conceive. This most likely refers to a young woman, possibly in the royal family, who would have a son. And while this boy was still young, that is, he was too young to know right from wrong, then these two kingdoms that it says Ahaz dreads so much, they would be laid waste. And this is, in fact, what actually happened in the year 722, 722 BC. This actually occurred according to this prophecy. Now, it's easy to look at Ahaz and think, come on, man. God is offering to help you directly. He's even offering to give you a sign, and you basically snub God. But before we judge Ahaz and before we move on, we'd actually do really well to ask this question, what is your greatest hope of ourselves? When we face problems, it's very easy for us to do what Ahaz did and search for something other than God to put our trust in and put our hope in. There are things that we're far more comfortable hoping in than putting our hope in God. And like Ahaz, our greatest hopes are usually attached to our greatest fears. So if your biggest fear is loneliness, well, then your greatest hope might be in relationships. If your biggest fear is singleness, then your greatest hope might be in finding a spouse. If your biggest fear is sickness or death, well, then your greatest hope might be in diet and exercise. If your biggest fears are financial, then your greatest hope might be in your savings or in some other financial resource. And these are all good things. I mean, we're talking here about managing your money wisely. We're talking about a spouse. We're talking about diet and exercise. These are all good things, but these are lousy things to place your hope in. When problems come, we realize how brittle these things actually are. But God is not brittle. Not only is he bigger than all of our biggest fears, he's also greater than all of our greatest, hope, greatest hopes. In Romans 8.28, here's what we read. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. So God will use the problems that I face to advance his ultimate purposes and he'll use them for my good. That's what this verse is saying. Now who else can do that? Who else can make that claim? Who else can make that promise? I mean marriage, for example, marriage is a great gift. I can't ask Andrea, my wife, to work all things for my good. Those of you who are married, I'd like to see you place that expectation on your spouse and see how that goes. Work all things for my good. Let me know how that goes. Health. Man, health is important. That's an important thing. But even the best doctors in the world, well, they can't promise to take your trouble and make good out of it. A good doctor can help you anticipate trouble. A good doctor can help you mitigate trouble. But if your doctor is telling you that he can take your trouble, all of your trouble, and turn it into good, mm, something's going on there. Money, money is a powerful thing. But money can't give you meaning and purpose. Many people have tried to turn money into meaning and purpose, and it does not work. God not only has the capacity, though, to turn our problems into good, he has the desire to do it. And he has told us 
He has promised us that for those who love him, he will. He is worthy of our hope. The final question that Ahaz had to answer is, who is your loudest voice? In other words, who are you listening to? Ahaz really had two options. In verse 5 we read, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. So Ahaz's enemies, they're saying, we're going to tear Judah apart. We're going to invade it, and we're going to rip it to pieces. And God is saying the polar opposite. It says the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place. It will not happen. And these voices, they're incompatible with each other. They cannot both be true. Either it would happen or it would not happen. One voice for Ahaz would have to drown out the other voice. And the voice that he chose to give prominence to, well, that would help him determine the size of his problem. According to one voice, his problem was insurmountable. According to the other voice, his problem was a smoldering stump of firewood, like we read earlier. So like Ahaz, we're surrounded with all kinds of voices that want to shape our perspectives on the problems that we're facing. We're living, you and I, we're living in the age of the expert right now. We've got experts for everything. We have parenting experts, relationship experts, we have financial experts, we have health and mental health experts, we have leadership and education experts, we have NFL draft experts. If it's a thing right now, we've got an expert for it. And every expert out there has an opinion about the size of your problems, not only the size of your problems, but how you should handle it, how you should go about dealing with them. And so as followers of, followers of Christ, how do, we, how do we deal with that? How are we supposed to manage all of these opinions? Well, the answer isn't to just disregard them. That's certainly not the case. If your doctor or your accountant gives you input on a health or a financial matter, you'd be wise to go ahead and listen to their advice. So we don't disregard them, but we also don't deify them. That is, we don't give them God-level status. We don't turn up the volume so loud on the voice of man that it begins to drown out the voice of God. Instead, what we do is we deliberately find ways to turn up the volume on God's voice. And sometimes that means finding ways to turn down the volume on these other voices to make room for hearing from God. An example of this for me is that, uh, you know, I, I like two of the voices that I really like to listen to are the Wall Street Journal and the Orange County Register. I think these are really helpful voices, and, uh, and I really appreciate the things that they have to say. But I've realized that I give too much prominence to these voices in shaping my perspective. I've also noticed I've got this pattern where I'll read the Bible every day during the week. I'll get up early, and the first thing I'll do after getting ready is I'll, I'll read the Bible uh, during the week. But then on Saturdays, I have no real plan for reading God's Word. And so what I've decided to do is to turn down the volume on the Wall Street Journal and on the Orange County Register by simply deciding, you know what, before I go to those voices on Saturdays, I'm going to go to God's Word. That's the thing I'm going to do first. I'm going to hear from God, and then I'm gladly going to go to those other voices and hear what they have to say. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to filter those through what God says. Now, as various problems come our way, the voices that we have a track record of listening to, those are going to be our go-to. 
Those are the ones that we're going to believe. And Ahaz, he did not have a track record of listening to God. And surprise, his moment of crisis didn't change that. He didn't all of a sudden begin listening to God when things got really bad. Now, you and I, we have an opportunity to build a track record of listening to God. And it happens this way. It happens as we daily open his word, read it, and do what it says. If we do that, then when problems arise, we're not just going to be at the mercy of the latest expert advice or the trending best practices out there for how to deal with our problem. Instead, we can take our, our cues from the God who loves us and whose word is never changing. We can look at what people say and we can say, okay, so-and-so says blank. Well, what does God want me to do with that information? We can filter that through God's words. Now, God told Ahaz that he would be with him. That's what we've been looking at. Unfortunately, Ahaz had a very hard time believing that to be true. Even when God offered him a sign, Ahaz never adjusted his perspective. He continued to fear armies more than he feared God. He continued to hope in military power more than he was willing to hope in God. He continued to allow other voices to drown out the promises of God. And things did not go well for him. You can go back and you can read in uh, 2 Kings Chapter 16, it tells more about what was going on with Ahaz and more of his story. You can go back and look and see how things go for Ahaz. It does not go well, and the th decisions that he made really do not turn out well for Ju Judah in the long run. But what God has done is God has shown us a greater sign than Ahaz ever saw. 700 years after this, looking back at what Isaiah said, Matthew wrote this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said, through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God has seen our problems, and he has actually come to be with us. And this is how we solved our greatest problem, and also how he resizes all of our other problems. This gives us hope both for the future and hope for today. And this is what we celebrate. This is what we're celebrating in these coming days. And as we celebrate, we don't have to pretend that our lives are our problem-free Christmas song lives. Instead, we can keep perspective on our problems by asking these three questions of ourselves. We can ask ourselves, what is my biggest fear? In this situation, is there something that I'm fearing more than God? We can ask ourselves, what is my greatest hope? Where is my greatest hope? Is it in God, or am I more comfortable hoping in something else? And we can ask, who is my loudest voice? Who is influencing my perspective on my problem? Is there a voice that needs to be turned down? Is there something I can do to turn up the voice of God in my life? Let's pray. God, we thank you for coming to be with us. No one forced you to do this. This was your initiative, God. You sought us out, and you decided to come and help us. You helped us by solving our biggest problem of our sin. And God, thank you that you don't just abandon us to everything else. You actually are with us in a, in a personal way, God. I pray that you would teach us to rely on you and to seek you, God. I pray that as problems come, you would just build for us a track record of showing up when we put our trust in you, that you would help build our faith, that we could respond to problems that we experience 
not with actions and decisions of fear or panic, but God, with, uh, with actions and decisions that are really driven by faith, by, by trusting in you, Father. Uh, God, we love you and we pray that as we move into these final days before Christmas, that you help us to remember you and take advantage of, um, of this time to, to, to recognize and just have extra gratitude in our hearts for what you have done for us. God, I pray that as we spend time with family and with friends, that you would help us to be a light to our family and friends as we interact with them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.